0: That gets me excited. I, I love those songs. I love all the songs that we have here today. and We'll have another good one at the conclusion of this. But we, first we get to hear the Word of God. Amen? Amen? <laughs> so that is my job, is to bring you the Word of God. Not my opinion, not my thoughts, but the Word of God to you today. And so I'm so privileged to do that. I'm humbled to do that. Each and every week I try to do the best job that I can. And Give clear exposition of God's word and then talk about how that makes a difference in our life And so I love the book that we're going through first Thessalonians So if you have your Bible you might want to go ahead and turn there and we're going to be looking at uh, the first 12 Verses of the second chapter 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is what we're going to be reading Uh, For you yourselves know brothers that are coming to you was not in vain because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward the believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. What we talked about last week, we, we talked about how it appears as though this church at Thessalonica was the model church or at least the model church plant. And by plant I mean it's a church that someone intentionally goes out and tries in that community to plant a church, to get a church started so that it can be a witness in that neighborhood and spread out through the rest of the community. And so it appears, and we know that Paul did this on, I believe it was his second missionary tour, went to this church, and preached the gospel to them. And what we were so amazed at, or at least I was last week, is that in the midst of persecution, Paul writes this letter a year and a half later. He's gotten a report from Timothy that this church is doing exceptionally well. They have continued to hold steadfast to the gospel. That's dangerous for a preacher to hold a pen in his hand, so I'll get get rid of that. I was really going out there for a while. It's like Bill O'Reilly's back, you know. (laughs) But uh, this church is doing exceptionally well, even after uh, they've been there only a year and a half, uh, and they've experienced some affliction and the persecution for their faith. And remember, Paul only spent three weeks preaching here. And so he had to do something right. First of all, they did something right, right? So they, they were the real deal. Paul says they're the real deal because when we preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, you believed. And that's the sign of the Holy Spirit being there. That is a sign of a true believer is that when the when the scriptures are preached and people believe, it's a sure sign that they are the real deal. Uh, they heard the gospel. They believed. It was inev- evident that this was a work of the Holy Spirit. They were commended for their work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in the midst of persecution. And one of the most amazing things, even... Something that is hard for us to do in a in an established church is they did discipleship. They really did discipleship. They imitated the apostles. So they not only learned from the word of God, but they also imitated the actions of the apostles. And when they imitated the the actions of of the gospel, they learned the gospel and they spread that to the rest of the territories. And it's said that Macedonia and Achaia became imitators of the church at Thessalonica. So this is how we started out last week. And we get a good picture of what a model church plant is. But today we're going to see what a model church planter or a pastor is like. What does it take to be a successful pastor? What does it take to be a successful church planter? Now, all pastors are not church planters. You know, some are like me. You know, I haven't I haven't been a church planter yet, but we come, we work at a church, we help that church to grow. Maybe sometime in the future, this church will plant a church. You know, that, that's got to be in the realm of our possibility. But not every pastor is a church planter, but I think they do have some of the very same, similar uh, qualities. So, we're going to be talking about some of the Uh, planter's uh, credentials, uh, some of their traits, to see what that is like as well. So the model preacher, the model pastor, the model church planter, first of all, they must have the proper credentials and they must have the proper quality. So if you're taking notes, want to write down a few things, I haven't got back into the habit of providing you something to write notes on, but you should have room on your bulletin to do that. But what does the model preacher look like? First of all, the model preacher has credentials. He has certain qualities. Now, in Titus, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, we know that there are qualifications that are given there for an elder or a pastor. These are a little bit different in the fact that these are seen in the lives of the Thessalonian church. These are examples. Uh, Whereas in 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus, is qualifications like the husband of one wife and to be without reproach and to be blameless. And so these are a little bit different, and I think you'll see that they're a little bit different. First of all, this church planter, this church pastor, must be approved by God. You'll notice it says here that they were approved by God in verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. They were approved by God. They had his stamp of approval upon them. And I think this probably goes back to the way that they handled God's word. First of all, the word apostle itself means one who is sent by God. So that's, that's uh, you know, an example of how they are approved by God. But then also 2 Timothy 2.15 says that for all of us, but especially apostles or pastors, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So the pastor who is approved by God is the one who rightly handles the word of truth, which is kind of how I opened up this sermon. That's, that's, that is my responsibility, is to give you the word of God. It's not my opinion. It's not my... Uh, It's not my thoughts, but it's what the Word of God says. And so, these preachers had the same qualification required of them, that they must be someone who knows the Word of God, has heard the Word of God, they've been under the teaching of someone who has taught them the Word of God, and then also they must rightly handle the Word of God. And so, (laughs) I'm thinking of, in illustration I'm thinking of uh, the Word of God being a sword right a two-edged sword can you imagine the damage being done by someone who does not know how to handle a two-edged sword it could be devastating right I mean it could be de- devastating physically to someone maybe a young person maybe a young child picks up a double-edged sword it's very sharp a lot of damage could be done that way and also in a church, if a pastor does not rightly handle the word of truth, there can be a lot of difficulty in that church. There can be difficulty anyway, right? There can be difficulty anyway. Sometimes uh, churches are difficult places for us to constantly to be in agreement with one another. and uh, But it should not be because the pastor has not handled the, tr- the word of truth uh, properly. And so because he's approved, he's entrusted to faithfully speak the gospel, to speak the message. He's entrusted. So how is a, how is a pastor entrusted? Well, normally a pastor is entrusted by the church hearing him for a while and then uh, either approving of him or disapproving of him. And sometimes, uh, most, almost all the time in Southern Baptist churches, a pastor goes through an ordination process. So there, you know, I do believe that ordination is something that should be, uh, you know, uh, should be required by church. I have been ordained. I was ordained in uh, First Baptist Church, I believe, in two thousand five, and so that just says that this church believes that this person is rightly handling the word of truth. And so, uh, the model pastor must have credentials, qualities. He must be. As someone who rightly handles the word of truth, he must be approved by God. He must also speak with boldness. He must also speak with boldness. And we need to speak in boldness right now during these days, right, in our culture. Uh, Because wimpy answers just don't last very long. (laughs) They must be spoken with some amount of force, but also with gentleness for those who are just learning. I learned a lot by listening to a, a sermon by a guy by the name of mike kelsey he's from mclean bible church in washington dc of all places i one of those mega churches david platt is also a pastor there and so they have i think uh, they said they had a hundred different nationalities who attended that church and so uh they need to speak definitely with boldness but also with gentleness and mike kelsey was talking about this in one of his uh, messages on how we need to be gentle, and he he kind of had a caveat though, because uh, we know that Jesus was gentle, but there was times when Jesus was not so gentle, right? You remember how he spoke to the hypocrites and called them whitewashed tombs, and he also in the uh, temple when they were money changers were there, he you know picked up the tables, tossed them over, and said you should not make this house of prayer, a den of thieves. And so Mike said, how do, we, how do we correlate those as being gentle? And so he came up with this definition of what it means to be gentle, is to use only as much force as required to obtain your goal. And I think we could learn from that. I think so many times in some of our discussions, we start out with the big guns, right? We start out with our hardest, strongest, Biggest, mainest point, and sometimes that's a little bit too bold. And being too bold means insensitive. Insensitive, right? We can be insensitive. Mike and I, I agree with this. I think, I think, uh, looking at Scripture, how Jesus uh, dealt with the the good uh, the woman at the well, and also dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery was gentle. He used only as much force as required. So we must speak with boldness, but be gentle. Also, this pastor, this model pastor, his desire is to please God and not man. Aren't you glad I don't have to please every one of you? (laughs) In my preaching, I do not have to please every one of you. That would be impossible for me to do. You all are at different stages of your life. You're all in different moods. Uh, you've all had different weeks. Some people maybe today will be offended by what I say. Other people may say, Yeah, go, Rob. Go, go, go. It just depends on what your mood is in. But I only have one person that I need to please, and that is God. And so if I do that faithfully to God's Word, then I my desire is to please God, and I will please God. And ultimately... That word will not come back void, right? We're given that promise. Preachers are given that promise. Those who share the gospel are given that promise that when we preach the word of God, when we share the gospel, it does not come back void. In other words, it has its intended effect. It always does. And you, you may say, Well, I shared Christ with my cousin and, and he didn't believe the gospel. It did not come back to you void. He will, he will continue to think about that and he will either repent or those words will condemn him, but they will have their in, intended effect. So we don't have to worry about that. So this model pastor, he has to have the right credentials, but he also has to have the right message. Amen? Amen? Got to have the right message. Must get this very basic of message uh, right, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul said that he demonstrated to them. He said that they had a message, but that it was without error. And that it was had no impurity. And that in this message, there was no attempt to deceive them, but it was only to impart truth. And so he says this message, this gospel, first of all, it's an appeal. It's actually a command. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that the gospel message is a command? It's a command that whoever hears this, repent and turn to the one and only true and living God. And so it's an appeal. It's a, it's a, it's a, we ask people to respond to it, but it is also a command. And they will help be held re, uh, uh, responsible for whatever decision that they make. But it came to them without error. In other words, Paul relayed the gospel message correctly to them. It had no impurity at all. And the reason, the way I see this, or the way I describe this, that it had no impurity, is that it had no pluses and it had no minuses. Any time, or many times, you'll see the gospel always, uh, there's something that they add to it. Or they, there's something that they subtract from it. And those pluses and minuses make it no longer the gospel. Okay? So an example. You must believe in Jesus Christ and you also must be circumcised in order to be saved. Right? No No, wrong, right? So this is an example in the book of Galatians. very first book I think I preached from when we were here five or six years ago. You cannot add to the gospel. It is by grace alone, faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. No, works are not required. Works are an evidence of our faith. And so baptism, a lot of people ask me, well, is baptism required? And I, you know, I want to give a full answer to that because no, it is not required for your salvation. The thief on the cross was saved and was never baptized. But if you are a Christian now... And you have the opportunity to be saved, but you don't want to be baptized, then I would question, is your faith really in Christ? You see what I'm saying? So, I mean, there must be a changed life when we come to know Jesus Christ that is evidenced by our desire to do good works. So for a Christian to come to me and say, well, do I, do I need to be baptized? Absolutely. Absolutely you need to be baptized. Not for your salvation, but it will sure show to the rest of the world that your faith in Christ is true. And so uh, so we, we cannot add to the gospel. It cannot, we cannot add good works. We cannot add circumcision. We cannot add baptism. Uh, we cannot add giving to the church. We can't add uh, church attendance. It's only in faith in faith in Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And a, a negative would be you take something away from the gospel. And a negative might be, well, you can accept Jesus as Savior, but you don't have to accept Him as a Lord. Or Jesus is a good prophet, and you should believe and trust in Him, but He is not God. And then it becomes no longer the gospel, right? We are saved We are saved from our sin, but we are saved to God. The whole purpose is that we might have a relationship with God. And so make sure that when we present the gospel, when anyone presents the gospel, that it's without error, that it's the gospel that says that Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins in such a way that when we repent and believe in Him, we can have eternal life in a new relationship with God and our sins be forgiven. Jesus died on that cross. He didn't stay there, right? He rose from the dead on the third day and He ascended to heaven and He now intercedes for us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you could include that He is returning again someday. So we need to present that without error. A good pastor will do that without error. He will not add to it. He will not subtract to it. As tempting as it may be to do that, And they must present the message in good faith. It's not an attempt to deceive, to get something out of them, but it's only to impart truth. And so, the pastor's message must be clear. The pastor's motives must also be clear. And Paul very clearly here says that we did not preach this to you to flatter you. And flatter means simply, to it's an insincere form of praise in order to advance one's own interest. Paul did not do this. He didn't go to them and puff them up in such a way that they would be so enthralled with Paul that they would accept this gospel. That would not have been them receiving the gospel at all. That would be, would have been them relishing in Paul's pride in them. You get that distinction? We can't can't make people feel good enough or flatter them or do anything other than share the gospel with them uh, that would advance our own interests. That is an impure motive. It must also not be for greed. Paul did not come to them for their money or to gain anything from them. He only sought to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might be saved. He did not seek glory from other people. He only wanted Jesus Christ to be glorified in all that he did. The model pastor has a great love for his people. This one and then one more and then we'll be finished. The model pastor has a great love for his people. Starting with verse 8, we see his love for the people. He is affectionately desirous of all of them. He believes like, uh, like we believe is that all people can be saved if, if they hear the gospel and respond to it. And so Paul goes to Thessalonica and he says, I want to preach the gospel to everyone to give everyone an opportunity to hear the gospel. Remember, he only stood three weeks, but something took him away, right? The crowds took him away. The mob turned against him. He had to leave. But he was so affectionately desirous of them, he wanted each and every one of them to hear the gospel. And not only hear the gospel, but he cared so much about him that they shared their very lives with him. They worked right alongside with him. They worked day and night that they might not be a burden. And so Paul was a tent maker he would work during the days, I assume, and make his tents, make money for him to live and for the other people that were with him to live. And then in the evenings, more than likely in the evenings, he would teach as much as he could teach. He, maybe he knew he only had a short period of time. But he loved the people this much that he was willing to spend night and day with them. And that also gives us a clue of how in three weeks that they could learn everything that they needed to learn to establish this church. He said that their conduct was holy and righteous. Here he goes again, just not only preaching the word, but setting the example for them. Uh, One person, I've quoted this before, but it says, discipleship is more caught than taught. It is more caught than taught. We need both of those. We definitely need sound teaching from the pulpit, from the Sunday school class, but there's time where you need on-the-job training, right? And that's where Paul takes Timothy or Paul takes Silas and said, we're going to go visit this home. You watch me how I do this. And next time you'll be able to go out and you'll do that on your own. This is is what Paul did. He did it in a gentle manner. I love this part of it. Because so many times we think that the pastor has to be the dominant authority figure. But a pastor can be an introvert like me, can be gentle like a father with his children, it speaks of, I think in verse uh, 11. He disciplines them, but he does it without frustrating them. And then further back up in the chapter, he says that he was gentle with, with them like a nursing mother with her children. He took gentle care with them. And they must have really appreciated that because they learned a lot So the model pastor must have love for his people. He also must have the right credentials, the right message, the right motives, love for his people. And then there's a a pastor's challenge in the very last verse of this section. Let's read it again. It says, let's read 11 too. For for you know now, for you know how, like father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you And charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, the pastor's challenge, and this would be my challenge to us as well today, is to walk in a manner worthy of God. Such a big message. This is all through the New Testament. Paul uses this term in Galatians, I believe, in Colossians, in just about every book he read. He says, don't just believe with your head, but walk in a manner, live out your life in a manner that is worthy of God. Amen. And so that is our challenge today is to take these examples of what a, a, a loving pastor should be and learn from them and take this challenge that we walk in a manner worthy of God. As we close, I want to give the opportunity for anyone here to give their life to Christ. And I know we meet very regularly, but uh, and many times you've heard this Gospel, but Jesus has loved us so much that He came into this world. And uh, I'm not sure that was a pleasant thing for Him to do, to leave His heavenly kingdom and come to an earth where it's dirty and water is dirty and food is not abundant and travel is difficult but he did that did it as a baby didn't come as a king with honors and glory but came humbly in in a as a baby as a young child Now, I'm often thinking you know to God about what a chance you're taking <laughs> babies are fragile <laughs> babies in uh, in cultures where disease is rampant it's dangerous many of them did not live But of course we know God is sovereign and there's not a moment's time that he was In any real danger because he was the son of God, but he grew up just like we did Although it might have been kind of unusual that he never did anything wrong with his for his parents, you know and his siblings probably grew up not appreciating that very much they were the ones that always got in trouble and he never got in trouble but uh, I'm sure they tried to blame him for something, but probably never stuck. But anyway, he grew up as a young man and followed his father in his trade, became carpenter, and probably did that for several years because his ministry didn't start till he was, what, 30? So, you know, he was probably working from the time he was 13, 14 years old and doing carpentry work, maybe some stone work as well. Uh, that same word for carpentry can also mean stone work. So he may have done a little bit uh, of one or the other, or both. Uh, but there came a time where he heard the call of God, and he said, this is time for your ministry to begin. And he was baptized by Jesus. Uh, the dove descended, and the father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And he began his ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God is coming. Repent. The kingdom of God is coming. And uh, even after that, he began telling his disciples, there's going to come a time where... I'm going to leave you. And they didn't understand what he meant, but he told them plainly, you know, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised on the third day. And just like the prophecy, he was betrayed by Judas and handed over to the people who were against him. He went to mock trial and uh, was uh, basically uh, charged with blasphemy, claiming to be God, which he was God, so it was no blasphemy, but he was an innocent person who went to a cross, suffered a pain that we cannot even begin to imagine, um, all for us, that He might pay the penalty for our sin. You see, each and every one of us has sinned. We don't have to worry about that. I can I can preach to a crowd and say, you have sinned, and, and they shouldn't be offended because I'm calling myself a sinner as well. We've all sinned and fall short of glory of God. We don't measure up to the standard that He has set for us. He created us, that we might image Him forth to the rest of the world. In other words, God is glorious. We were designed to be glorious so that we might represent Him to the rest of the world. But as I mentioned before, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We miss literally the mark. If you're shooting at a target, there's a bullseye. We miss the mark every time. And you might say, well, that's not a big deal. Well, it's a big deal. In God's economy because God is a holy God God is perfect there is no sin in God and he cannot reside in a place where there is continual sin against him and this sin is uh, you know it takes a lot of different forms which we know very well it comes in the form of lying or cheating or you know lack of integrity or sexual immorality but really what it is it's a rebellion against God's ways Ultimately, it's us saying, I can live my life better than you, than following your plan. And that's rebellion, it's disloyalty to God. So he sees it as something very serious. But he loves us too. He's he's holy and he's just. He must punish sin, but he loves us with a love that we cannot imagine. And so he said, I will send my son to die for their sins. Think about that. You know, we think about the sacrifice Jesus made, but think of the sacrifice of sending your only son to die for people's sin who neither recognize you nor appreciate you. But that's what he did. Sent his son to die on the cross. He endured that sin. He endured an absence from the presence of the Father in some way that is hard for us to understand, but must have been the most excruciating thing for him. He had always been in fellowship with the Father, and yet He wasn't. And so eventually He succumbed, he succumbed to the pain of the cross, and he, he finally slumped, and His last words, I believe, were, It is finished. It's finished. I remember one Greek word from when I went to seminary. Actually, I knew this Greek word before I went to seminary. Tetelestai. It is finished. It's an economic term which means the debt has been paid. He paid the debt on the cross. And He was buried for our sin and paid the penalty for our sin. And if the story was just there, it would be a remarkable story, but it wouldn't be good news. The good news really is because Jesus three days later rose from the dead. And when He rose from the dead, it's like God crying out to the world, I accept his sacrifice as payment for your sins because death could not hold him down death could not hold him out he had to come up out of the grave and now he has risen to the right hand of the Father he has sent back his Holy Spirit for us and he says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest and that rest is rest from us trying to work for our salvation. Because our salvation is, and our religion is different than any other religion. Every other religion says, do. Do this. Keep this commandment and you will be saved. Do this and you will be in good standing with God. But Christianity is the only religion that says, done. It's been done for you. Now receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have not done that, or you're not sure that you have eternal life, please, as we close in the time of prayer and meditation, give your life over to Christ. And maybe you're in a, at a place where Um, you're not sure because you've not been in church for a while or you're you're just unsure about your place, then the answer is the same. Come today, surrender your life to Christ, trust in Him, and He will give you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this time. We ask that You would do Your work here today, that You would after the preaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would guide people to make decisions that they need to make today. Whether it's to accept this challenge, to walk their life in a manner worthy of God, or whether it's to receive Christ for the first time, or whether it's maybe to rededicate your life to Christ. Let them hear from you. Maybe it's not an audible message, but it's a confirmation after hearing God's Word, yes, this is what I need to do to be right with God. And we will leave you uh, to do that work as we give glory to you in this next song. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.